Welcome to today's Daytime Dialogue. And it is a true pleasure today to welcome a good friend and one of the great mechanchim in our community, Rabbi Moshe Terrigan. For those, I'm gonna switch for a moment, I'm gonna switch from my office at Ida Crown to my back to the shul. For those, for those who are not familiar with Rabbi Terrigan, he's been a Ram, I think it's 25 years now at Yeshivat Haratzion at Gush. Uh, before that, he was a student at Yeshiva University. Uh, he has a bachelor's in computer science from Yeshiva University, an MA in English literature from City University in New York. But most importantly, Rabbi Terrigan has been teaching our sons and daughters, the sons in Gush and the daughters in, um, in the Beit Midrash for women in Migdalos for many years and impacting their lives and by extension, American jury in a very profound fashion. So Rabbi Terrigan, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. I'm honored that you invited me. You're not just my friend, but you're also, I can call you a mentor. You're a little bit older than I am. And I, I thought you were reminding me, but <laughs> that inspiration, inspiration, just watching how passionate you are, how committed you are, how devoted you are, and just the voice of sanity without compromising passion and strong commitment to our values and our and our beautiful world way of life. Thank I you. thank you so much for that. And I, I really, it's a pleasure to have you and to have this opportunity to schmooze a little bit. And unlike the many other times we've had a chance to learn with you, today I just want to talk with you a little bit about your experiences, a little bit about what's going on. Um, right before we got started, you mentioned to me that you're hoping there's going to be a major shift in the yeshiva after Pesach. How's that? How's it going to look after Pesach? I hope it will look much like the world looked before 2020. Um, obviously, I don't think we're going to walk away from this pandemic. It's going to shape our thought. When I say our thought, I don't just mean the Grush. It's going to shape humanity's thought for many years to come. I don't think that we can't really turn the clock back to 2019 or 2020. But at least I think the externals, the visuals, I hope we won't have walls. I hope we'll be able to interact. Part of what makes yeshiva life in general and our yeshiva in particular so enriching is just the sheer variety of backgrounds, cultures, ages, interests. It's a real Petri dish of different boys coming. I shouldn't say phrase right now. Petri, Petri dish is during, a, during a yeah, pandemic, I'm not sure is the right comparison. Right. It's a real <laughs> kaleidoscope. kaleidoscope. I meant to say kaleidoscope. It's a kaleidoscope of so many different, that's my vision of yeshiva, people from all over the world, different walks of life, but we're not meant to be the same. And though we gather around common values, we gain so much by meeting people at different ages, different stages, and that's been taken from us. I think we've all contracted into very small spaces. So, so after everyone's been vaccinated in the yeshiva already? Yes, I think um, we have 100% vaccination. Obviously, all of our all of our Talmudim are 16 and older, and we're hoping again. We 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 have felt in the yeshiva, and this has guided our policy decisions throughout the process that we don't only have to adhere to the Ministry of Health directives, we have to go beyond the call of duty, we have to worry about optics. Sadly enough, there's been so many deviances from public health expectations and standards committed by people who are associated with Torah and with Judaism, we feel like we have to stand in the breach and provide a different message. So we've been extremely cautious. I think we could have relaxed the standards about two weeks ago. We just felt like we had to send a message. So we've been very careful, even though we're immune. So no masks? We, we're still we're still wearing masks and we're still in enclosures, but we don't feel like we need it. Like the boys, it's a bit ironic. The boys are coming over my house for Shabbos and for Friday night dinners and they're interacting with me socially. And then we all go back to Yeshiva and put on our masks. But 
Wow. Okay. And and let me just go back for a moment. How did you end up at Haritzion? <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I didn't know the questions would be personal. <laughs> yeah, I want to have a good time. <laughs> okay. Was this? How did I end up as a teacher? How did I end up as a student? Well, first of all, how did you end up as a student and then as a round? That's actually the student part is even more interesting. I was raised in a typical Kins style home. We were Zionist, very Torah oriented. My father studied in Near Israel. We attended a young Israel, young Israel of the 70s and 80s, which more or less would be a very similar feel to walking into Kins. That was my world. But for whatever reason, I didn't attend Ida Crown like schools and I didn't attend HTC type schools. I went to real Haredi schools for my high school upbringing. We learned in Yiddish. My teachers were holdovers from the Mir in Shanghai. And my world was Lakewood. And I got a lot from that world. But there was an inner ricochet, an inner echo that I just felt uncomfortable about a lot of the ideas expressed there that didn't sync with who I was. And I had this gnawing sense as an adolescent that I was in the wrong place. and wasn't able to articulate it clearly and cogently, but there's something, I wasn't fully at peace with myself. And I knew I wanted to go to Hezder Yeshiva. I hadn't a clue which has the yeshiva to go to. My high school spent the entire senior year trying to convince me, persuade me, uh, prevent me from falling off the face of the earth and going to a B'nai Akiva has the yeshiva. Finally, the last day of the year, my Menahel called from Lakewood called me into his office and he said, Moshe, I think you're making a mistake by going to one of those yeshivas. But if you go to one of those yeshivas, you should go learn by Ravar because he won't be you won't be satisfied with anyone else. So I said, who's Ravar? He said, oh, Ravar Lichtenstein, go to Gush. So I went there, I checked Gush, but my Manal from Lakewood sent me there. So how did, how did Manal know about Ravar? Do you have any idea? I think his, his level of, of Talmudic mastery was known even in the so-called Haredi world. I think that was pretty obvious throughout the years, everyone, even, even his most staunchest opponents still conceded that his mastery of shots was not just surpassing, it was just different. It was, I, I felt as if I was learning with a throwback from the era of the Tanayim, from the era of the great sages. He knew the entire system from a bird's eye view. He wasn't responding. Most of the Talmudists respond to a particular text, a group of texts, Rishonim's interpretation, will analyze, will interpret medievalists. It's almost as if the entire system of Torah was a bunch of Lego pieces in a box and you're sitting on top of that box. Oh, here's a piece, here's a piece. And how can they create ideas? Fascinating. And so did you go, most boys when they end up in Gush don't go straight, didn't go straight into a baron's shear. Did you go straight to a baron's shear? No, but he changed my life. I mean, he, the, the moral force of his personality, the drive, the commitment, the strength of, of, of mind over matter. I mean, of, of not sleeping, not eating, of being committed to a cause. I mean, it, it, it was, it was like a, again, an, an imperfect word, but it was a, existential tsunami. It's just, it, it overcame you and it changed every part of your being. You remember, you know, Rev Neria has this great description of the very first time he came, he met Rev Cook. Rav Moshe Tsuneria, the founder of the Yeshiva Ben Akiva meeting, Rev Cook, the first chief rabbi of modern Israel. And he said he walked in, it was a Motzei Shabbat, he walked into Rev Cook's apartment and all of a sudden he saw this Chesidah Sharov with a spodik. And that Rav with the Spodic projected this sense of Kedusha, very different than he would have imagined. I guess in my terms, he probably would have been imagining somebody with a Tilbosha Benek, even a Kippah Surga. 
Do you remember your first encounters with Rebaron? It's a great question. And it's, I, my answer will be ironic, but reflective. I don't think that the encounter with Reb Lichtenstein would elicit those types of supernatural epiphanious moments. That was his greatness. His greatness was that it was so passionate, so fiery, so committed, so otherworldly. I literally felt as if I was in the presence of a Vilmagone type person who had landed from a different planet, but it was so normal. You came to his house. I remember coming to his house for Shabbos and he greeted me in a V-neck t-shirt because he was cleaning the house. So he created the ability to live a normal life as a husband, as a father, as a community member. And, and, and yet the accomplishments and the religious passion were as deep as I imagine Rivneria was able to discover in Nefko, in his mind. And, and with Rav Amital also at the yeshiva, did you have the same kind of relationship, I would assume? Or was it different? I think, I think it was harder to understand Rav Amital because the language barrier, it was harder initially. As I spent many more years in yeshiva, I realized how deeply he changed my life. Um, it wasn't as, just very often when I, when I speak, and I speak a lot in public, people say, well, you're always quoting Rav Amital. How come you're never quoting Rav Lichtenstein? Part of it is that Rav Lichtenstein wrote very copious <laughs> tracts of ideas. It's hard to find the money line. Rav Amital, you could shrink into a quote, into a story, into a song, into a phrase. So Ravarin is unquotable. Ravamital is much more quotable. But it's also as if Rev Lichtenstein what was so holistic in how he shaped every part of your identity. Every speech was about everything. He started with a particular issue, but it was very panoramic and very, very networked. So you felt as if he was talking about your core identity. It's hard to then identify with this I got from Rev Lichtenstein. I feel like my entire essence was shaped by him. Ravamital, I can itemize these seven or eight values I feel I gained from my encounter with And so the yeshiva today is obviously in the next generation. It, but let's talk about the boys. You know, I find that I've been doing about the same amount of time, just a little bit more since you've been around at, at Haratzio and I've been principal at Ida Crown. And I've seen transformations of what the teenagers are like. You get them the next step. What's the big changes that you see in the boys who come, whether Israeli or American, between when you first started as a Ram and today? Look, I'm not, I'm not of the camp that is, is uh, exceedingly nostalgic and everything from the 1980s was perfect and everything in our decade is flawed and deficient. I think Torah is much more popular, religious values are more popular. I think your average boy or girl has greater access to Torah inspiration, to role models, to younger role models, like yourself used to be young, even now to the middle-aged role models. Again. <laughs> to identifiable, identifiable role models. I think the, the ways in which people study Torah is much more creative. Um, I think changes such as digitized Torah, Sepharia, access on the internet. I, I think the world of Torah is richer and the world of religious commitment is just more obvious. It wasn't obvious. The world that I remember in the 70s was not a world in which it was popular to be deeply religious. I, I felt like I was swimming upstream. I feel like as a teenager, I had to make a stand about my religion rather than being drawn by B'nai Akiva and CSY in my school. So I think there's a lot of advantages. I think there's a lot of pressure the boys feel to the degree that families aren't as, they don't pad life as much as these two families are much more complicated today. Um, a lot more divorce, a lot more stressed family life. So I think that boys suffer less self-esteem self issues are much more pointed, um, anger issues. 
I think that at the core, there's a lot more um, um, splintered, splintered emotional experience. How about their ability to focus and concentrate? I was, I, when I was, when I described to my students that when I was in yeshiva, I'm not, I never went to yeshiva, I only went to yeshiva at HTC, that, you know, shear for us was, a short shear was about an hour and a half experience, and a regular shear would be two and a half to three hours. And watching students trying to stay focused for 40 minutes is a challenge. I know at Haratzion, there are longer shiurim and there are shorter shiurim. Do you see a difference in students today? I, I have to admit, I don't, but I fear that I'm exposed to a certain percentile of the population in which you less sense the erosion. I think we're dealing with a certain type brand of boy and girl who have the attention span, focus, intensity. I haven't detected it, yeah. but I've heard others like yourself describe it. And going back now, even further back, when you were at uh, NYU, was the rub still there? Did you have any interactions with the Rav? So I was in the Rav Shear the last year that he delivered Shear, but it was a very sad year. It was a sad year because the Rav was already significantly limited medically. He was infirm. It was difficult to understand him. We would wait for hours until he arrived from doctor visits or flying in from Boston. And it got to the point and just to punctuate how difficult it was or to, reflect, to, to cap capture how difficult it was. And there was a certain group of boys that I belonged to that decided to break away and not attend the Rav Shear, even though we were officially registered to be in the Rav Shear because we deemed that some total we could benefit more by just studying on our own without waiting in the disruption. So could you imagine one of the greatest Talmudic scholars of the last 300 years and boys who are 20 years old decide not to attend the Shear? And then Halfway through my year, he retired to Boston and he stopped giving shares. So I had that contact, but it was it was the sunset of his career. There's a story I heard, I don't know if it's apocryphal or real, that uh, his son led him off at one point, and that was the end of the last time he gave a shear or gave a, a lecture. Is there you aware of that? I'd, I'd already left the shear, so <laughs> I was part of that breakaway group. <laughs> uh, okay. And in terms of in terms of the, your own move after that, so you went when you got your MA in English literature. Was that driven by Rebarin's uh, background, or was there something you were interested in? I think Rev Lichtenstein. I think his interest in Mada is very different than the Rev's interest in Mada. I think I would call Rev Lichtenstein a humanist. He deeply believed in the virtue and integrity of human beings. He deeply respected human beings. And to me, that's a hallmark of a Talmud of Revolution. Are you respectful to other human beings? Or are you disrespectful? Are you exploitative, manipulative? And if other human beings had, had wise and, and, and informed positions, statements, literature about life, he wanted to read them. So I remember when his father spent time in yeshiva as an elderly man who had gone blind, and he, he was so committed to his father. And I, I, I felt like I never needed to learn Hilchas Kibbut Avayim from Meshulchan Arach because I saw it in the flesh. And I think that's the only way to learn Hilchas Kibbut Avayim. I don't think you can learn Kibbut Avayim from Meshulchan Arach. You need to see people. It's just, it's a different type of mitzvah. And he told us that to climb into the mind space of his father who was blind and infirm, he felt he wanted to read John Milton writing a poem called Samson Agonistes. And Milton wrote it when he was blind about Shimshon who was in a prison cell blind. And our Chazal had more important issues to attend to. They didn't discuss the psychology of a blind person, but John Milton did. 
So it wasn't to compare, as the Rav would compare, other systems of thought to Hashem's system of thought in the Torah. It was more, I need to be a better human being, better sympathize with other human beings. And to do that, I need to understand their space. And in their space, I want to read about them. I so yes, it was, it was driven by that respect and interest, but it's not as if it was a connected dots. Or I've studied literature, therefore I'm going to study literature. I remember Rav Moshe Luchtenstein telling me that after the after of Aaron Luchtenstein's second hip surgery, that he, when he was in recovery, and he woke up, that uh, Rav Moshe said he knew his father went through the surgery well because he began began to immediately quote from Shakespeare. Um, and I and it was fascinating because I told someone the story, um, who comes from a different camp. And they were appalled. Why wasn't he saying Tehillim? But it was to understand that other range of emotion that you have from other literature that Ravaran understood. Correct. Absolutely. So Rav Lichtenstein bestowed us the confidence that we could integrate broader sources of wisdom and insight without abdicating the depth of our religious commitment. And I think people, you need to have that confidence in life and that can only be endowed by meeting someone like that. Every time I fear or question whether my intellectual curiosity and my attempt to bridge other worlds will compromise my religious integrity, I feel as if I have his image in my mind. It's so emblazoned into my consciousness. I feel like, well, if he could do it, then at my own, of course, shrunken, more you know, uh, limited level, I feel like I can create that synthesis. So in, in the past year, we've lost some giants. And in the past 10 years, obviously, we lost many giants. Today, when your Talmudim are looking up to people, who are they looking up to? It's a really good question. I don't know that we'll be able to replace. I think we're at a stage in history where we may just have to... I, don't know, if, I know you're a baseball fan, so sometimes you have this fireballing reliever who can come in and close the game. Sometimes you have a bullpen by committee. So I think, I think we have leadership by committee. I don't think there are these outstanding personalities that tower above others. I just think we're, our benches run very deep. We have a little, many, many, many more talented, qualified educators and rabbis than we had 30, 40 years ago. But we have fewer superstars. So it's, you know, I, I find for myself, I had my Rosh Hashivas and my interactions, and most recently for many years, I had discussed working with Rabbi Schwartz itself. And there are many times where I, use my memory and imagination of what they would have said. That doesn't, that's not going to exist in, in the next generation in the same way. Is it normal? Is it natural? Is it just, we have to deal with it? I think my own personal opinion is that a gadol of Rav Lichtenstein's caliber and people like him, what defines them as a gadol is that they don't just have students. Like I have students and I hope I've shaped their life and I hope that their lives that they'll continue to quote my Torah and my ideas to their families. I don't expect that I'm going to shape the lives of my, the children of my students. I don't believe that my impact is going to cross generations. My impact will be limited to the people that I encounter that I teach. I think that Gedolim are transgenerational and they affect not just Talmidim, but Talmidim, Talmidim. In the same way that I was deeply affected by the Rav, even though I spent five or six months in the Rav's radius or in his orbit, but I, I learned with so many people who were touched by his life and his brilliance that through osmosis, I absorbed the Rav as if I'd studied with him. I believe that in the next generation, Rav Lichtenstein's legacy and Rav Amital's legacy will continue to be felt by my Talmudim and your Talmudim. And I've seen this. 
the Talmudim were studying the Gush, I think they walk out feeling, I'm a Talmud of a Talmud, I'm a, and therefore I'm a Talmud, unlike the Vilna Gon who lived 300 years ago, 150 years ago. And to go into a little bit of a lighter topic for a moment, just because people are going to be watching this, they really don't know a lot about, about Yeshivat Haritzion, size and the makeup. How many Talmudim are currently in Haritzion? Well, that's a hard Probably. question. It depends how you slice it. There are about 450 students, mm -hmm. um, probably closer to 500. Um, the, the core yeshiva is a five-year Hezder program, which combines army service and yeshiva studies. Baruch Hashem, we've been blessed. We have about 100 married students learning in our kolo, which is, a, wow. I think, a, a real milestone for, for we're, we're not at the level of Lakewood yet, but I think for Hezder yeshivas, it's certainly impressive. Um, and um, we have a teacher's college, the Herzog Teacher's College, which has close to, I think, by 3,000 young men and women starting to be educators in the Israeli school system. And, and the boys who come for the year in Israel, about how many boys come a year? So you mean overseas boys? Yeah, the overseas. We try not to discriminate. Let's start from, let's start first of all from the Americans, because you also have the Southern Hemisphere, right. Europeans. We have about 50 boys who come each year to begin one or two years of study in Yeshiva. Well, about four or five boys a year from Chicago this year. We have three boys from Chicago who are planning on attending. I don't know the figures for the girls, but we also have a sister institution called Migdalos. I think there may be fewer overseas girls who come. But as you say, we're, we're a very international program. We have a lot of South Africans, a lot of Australians. We have several Europeans, um, a couple of tokens. Next year, we have a boy applying from France, a boy applying from uh, South America. We also have a very unique program which several Chicago boys have attended, which was suspended this year, but hopefully will be reenacted next year, called the Darkener program for special needs boys. Natan Nussbaum, I don't know who else in Chicago. And, and you also had uh, um, David Yahav was in there. David Yahav, right. Yes. That's a very, very, very uh, deeply, deeply valued, cherished program in Yeshiva. And then, of course, we have about uh, 70 or 80 first year Israelis who start their five year program with us. So. And in, in terms of yeshiva tesdar, there are so many nowadays, thank God, and there and some and it seems like there are waves that uh, you know, Gush is one of the mainstays core of the yeshiva tesdar, and then you start hearing all of these other names of yeshiva tesdar. Is there in trying to get the fellows into their first year, in the first machzor, is there a competition between the yeshiva, or it's more the boys choose themselves? So I'm less involved in in the intake of Israelis. But when you say there's so many Hezder Yeshivot, I don't know who's listening, but when, when I ask most Americans how many Hezder Yeshivot there are, they say four, three, because they're only familiar with Hezder Yeshivot that have American imprints. And those are Yeshivot such as Karen Biavna and Shalavim and Yeshivat HaKotel and Grosh and Malay But in the broader Hezder landscape, there are at least this year, the changes from year to year, more than 80 Hezder Yeshivot. And that doesn't begin to account for the Mechina programs, nor does it account for the Rav Kook yeshivas, which are national religious, but aren't technically Hezder. They're more, you choose your own schedule of when to learn, when to serve in the army. Just in terms of surveying the landscape, there are four or five Hezder yeshivas. Um, I, I think there's natural selection, I would say. I think the front runner Hezder yeshiva, like in, in America, the boys who apply to Gersh tend to also apply to a Karen Biavna or to a Shalavim or to HaKotel. Whereas in Israel, the boys who apply to Gersh tend to apply to very, very different places. They apply to Malay Dumim. They apply to Yerucham, where my boys all go to get away from me. <laughs> 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 um, 
They apply now. Still a Talmud of uh, the Gush. Right, right. They'll apply to Shirlo, another Talmud of the Gush in Karabachia, which is now in Tel Aviv. They'll apply to Otniel, another Talmud of the Yeshiva. So those are what I would say, those are the five or six yeshivas that operate in our space. The, you know, the very serious learners who are looking to attend a Western, infl- Western inflected as the yeshiva, less of Cook, but more of a salvation. I don't believe that there's competition. I, I hate to say it, but I think some of the competition coming from your end of the world is because it's money-driven, I think. Um, programs that are operating with only Americans are the programs for profit. We, we don't really turn a profit because we're such a large institution. It just gets lost in the other beans, the other. But uh, I don't think in Israel is competition. I think there's, boy, also remember, boys in Israel come and spend an entire week in the yeshiva to try out the yeshiva. It's a very different way of choosing than just having a, a man or a representative of the yeshiva present a 45-minute uh, presentation. About the yeshiva. And, and now with the, with the new structure, it's not that now, since, since the passing of Rav Luchtens and Rav Amital, and their, their creation of this new structure of the second generation of Rosh Yeshiva, has there been, you know, if you were walking into the yeshiva with the exclusion of not seeing Rav Luchtens and Zetzal, Rav Amital Zetzal, would you see a big difference in the day-to-day in the shiurim, and even in the derech of the yeshiva, or is it be, as you mentioned before, intergenerational, their impact? Well, there's a fascinating article. I'll send you a link to the article, an op-ed piece by David Brooks. So it goes back a couple of years ago. Evidently, he belonged to some youth league through the fire department. And 40 years later, one of the members of that group had passed, and they all gathered to mourn their friend. And they felt their their identification with that fireman's league so deeply 40 years later. So David Brooks asked the question, how come there are thin institutions, institutions we attend and that we move on in life? And then what he calls thick institutions, institutions that get into our blood and define us and we identify with them. And he lists five or six parameters for thick institutions. I felt like I was reading the gush because a lot of people that study in the gush deeply identify 30 years later, 40 years later, I printed it out and gave it to Tova Lichtenstein it was after Wilkinson had already passed, and she was just, oh, thank you. She, she said, this is exactly who we are. I think we're a thick institution, and I think the reason we are is because we're not a program geared solely for 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds to study. I think we have different ages, so it's more of a Lakewood-based matters feel, so you feel as if there's a core yeshiva that extends beyond your peer group. But additionally, I think there are five or six values that the yeshivas put on the map. And those are values that continue to resonate with people, even when they're not involved in the day-to-day activities of yeshiva, be it settlement of our land, be it the serious study of Tanakh, be it the introduction of the brisker lambdas into the Israeli scene, women's learning, the integration of, sec- of the secular world with Torah. So I think there are four or five values that define us. And I think that even if you're 20 years down the pike, you look back to the yeshiva as the lighthouse of those values. So it's... Still, Gush is the Gush. I, I guess when I remember, when I was in high school, Gush was Harvard. And to get in, you had, you had to be very, very unique boy coming from Chicago. And very, very rare would go to the Gush. And now, Gush is accessible. So there is that, I don't know if it's just because we grew up or because once we figured out that, oh, it isn't as inaccessible. We could possibly strive for that. And, you know, full disclosure, my three boys all went to Gush. And uh, the reality is that maybe, maybe Gush is the same and maybe we've changed. I don't know. 
Rebbe Gamliel used to control admittance into the base matters. There's a Pesach story. When he was deposed by Blazov and Azari, they added 400, some say 600 benches to the base matters. I think we've taken that tack. We've, that generation of students who went through the initial stages of the Gush, I think Rev Lichtenstein was so surpassing in his accomplishments that I think he truly had a difficult time imagining that you couldn't summon that same effort and finish us by the time you entered Yeshiva. So I think his view of what students needed and what their level was, was a little bit disproportionate because he was so talented and achieved so much. I think the second generation, we've been able to realize not every high school boy will graduate Ida Crown knowing half of Shas. Nor will he graduate HTC or other high schools. And how can we create a yeshiva which maintains the soul of who we are, but still grant more accessibility, softer landing, more handholding, without compromising. Once you sell your soul, you lose your identity. So I don't think we've lost our identity, but we've tried to round out the edges. Uh, and uh, on that note, our time is up, Rabbi. So I truly appreciate this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. I hope I didn't catch you off guard with some of the questions, but it's, a, it's great to have you in person. Can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. <laughs> what, what, what is your best story with Rivara Mufnissi? Um, I was with Rabarin when I was um, president of the RCA, and I had a meeting. Dove Carroll set up the meeting for me, and there were some very weighty issues that I was discussing with him. And watching the way he took apart the questions and the assumptions, so that by the time we were done in the conversation, some of those questions I, had, I was a little embarrassed to have asked because I realized after talking to you they weren't. But at one point there was a certain um, rabbi in America where there were some questions about and I raised the issue and he said, look, this is something he just wrote. And um, I, I read it through and there's nothing wrong with what he wrote. And so you may ask questions, but if what he writes is real and it's true, then you can't object. And so the, the truth of, uh, of Rev Lichtenstein and um, I'll give you one more and then I'll, and I'll let, let you go. Uh, he stayed at our house a couple of times. And so one time I, uh, I was driving him to Shul, he was, he was in a sling. Um, he had fallen and he had broken his arm and I was taking him to Shul that morning and I come downstairs and I was, made sure I was really early for him. And he was sitting in our living room learning in the dark because he didn't want to bother anyone by turning on the lights. And then I asked him, is there something, do, would you like to eat something or, or drink something before we go to shul? And he said, no. He said, but can he have a glass of water? And he apologized. He said he never ate anything or drank anything before davening, but his doctor insisted that he should have some juice before davening because he had had some fainting spells. And he explained to me how he discussed this with his doctor and his doctor finally gave in and agreed it could be a glass of water. And he, I gave him a glass of water and he drank it like it was medicine. There was no external hana or pleasure from that glass of water before that. He had to have it, so he had it. He didn't break anything that he had been. Just those little things. One day we'll compare even more. <laughs> well, I, again, I thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I may actually call on you in the future again, but I look forward more to having you back in our show live, not just on Zoom. I look forward to the Kiddush after show. Oh, that we're talking about also. Rabbi Terrigan, thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful week. Great Pesach and a good Shabbos. Thank, thank you so much. I'm honored to be part of this moment. Thank you.